Good morning. How are you? Good to have you here, Carrie. How is your father? Is he doing better? Friday? Well, we're glad that he's doing better. Tell him to stay off high places. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to announce also that David Dodrell has gone back to the hospital. Some of you didn't know he had a, uh, an appendectomy uh, this week. And uh, apparently it's things aren't healing as they should. So any of you that are able, you can stop in this afternoon assuming that he'll be receiving visitors. It's in Bloomington. Uh, Don and Adam are actually up in Indy, so don't think you can visit them and their new baby. Uh, they're not here. Um, let's remember uh, David in prayer. Father, we do pray for David that you will uh, heal his body. And Lord, we pray at this difficult time when David has had business problems and so much on his plate that you will use this time for him to be able to meditate and be still and know that others will care for his family and that you will give Catherine particular strength and wisdom to lead the family at this time. We pray also for Chris. We thank you that he's present here this summer and we pray that he will know how he can be an encouragement and strength to his brother David. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Oh, and help the kids to be particularly obedient at this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Christopher, and Christopher, some of us know Chris because we went to Rwanda together, and Christopher is here for the summer, and we're very happy to have you, Christopher. I call you Christopher because I like that name. You probably go by Chris, right? Either one? All right. Christopher is, loves to uh, dance, and so if any of you uh, want to take him out for an evening, uh, Christopher would be very, very happy uh, I have howled listening to Christopher describe uh, the meaning and significance of uh, particular ballroom dances. So that's one thing you can talk to Christopher about. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, you, don't, you know where we're headed. Uh, Galatians chapter 6. We're now in the final chapter this morning. And... Uh, we're going to read this morning verses 1 and 2, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. And we'll probably spend a couple of weeks on this, these first two verses. And I'm sure none of you will complain. All right? Dear, dear, you remember that A.A. Milne poem? Dear, dear, what is the matter with Mary Jane? It's lovely rice pudding for dinner again. Dear, dear, what is the matter with Mary Jane? It's lovely Galatians for dinner again. <laughs> Any of you know that poem? I love that poem. Any of you? Nobody knows that poem? John Crumb, that's it? Oh, you guys have got to read that poem. I don't like rice pudding at all. And so I've always loved that. My brother Nathan loved it, so that poem meant nothing to him. What's the matter with Mary Jane, the little kid, is that she can't stand rice pudding. Dear, dear, what is the matter with Mary Jane? All right. 
Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the Word of God and it's eternally true. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is God's Word. Now, in the last few verses of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul exhorted the Galatians to walk by the Spirit. And in the very final verse of that section, he said this, verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So having said what they're not to do, he now turns to the positive. If we are not to let jealousy rule, leading us to conflict, we are to let mutual love and mutual sympathy rule, which in turn lead us into unity and peace. Now this unity and peace, however, is not the product of there being no threats to that unity and peace. There are threats constantly to the unity of any marriage, of any home, and of any church. We have gone as a nation through a time of trying to process the changing ethnicity of our country, the balance of trade, a whole host of issues come together in the issue of immigration. And not the least of these is just plain old selfishness. I'll never forget being out in La Jolla, California. I was living in La Mesa at the time in San Diego and I decided to go to a beach and uh, I got out of my car, went down to the beach, came back to my car and some surfers had written on the car, you know, go home you non-Californian because I had uh, Illinois license plates on my Volkswagen bug. And uh, my mother-in-law has up, I think it's in the bathroom so you can see it's not being treated with any great respect. But she has in the bathroom this certificate that makes her a snob, S-N-O-B, the Society of Native Oregonian Born. So if you look at us in our individual states, you'll see that some of us take pride of being a Native Oregonian Born, some Native Californian. Uh, And so even in the country, state by state, We take pride in our state and we look down at those who come into the state and haven't lived there from the beginning. Well, as a nation, much of the conflict in our nation is also the product of selfishness and pride. And uh, we look at people who haven't been born American citizens and uh, we don't like them taking jobs from us as we see it. Uh, And so we say, well, they're illegal aliens. And and, uh, there's a distinction between law-abiding immigrants and illegal aliens. Well, as you know, if you've been anywhere traveling around the world, that distinction is it's valid. But uh, there are many Americans who live in other countries of the world who are not entirely legal. Do you know that? Have you ever talked to any missionaries? And so, how would you like it if all of a sudden all the American missionaries were kicked out of all the countries they served in because actually they're not really there as tourists or as, you know, uh, uh, green card holders. They're, they're actually there to subvert the government of the nation by teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But this was little agreements that the government won't look at them too closely if they won't be too bold. You all know this, right? I mean, isn't that an accurate description of what you do? Yeah, we have one right here in the third row. You can talk to her afterwards. I won't identify her so that the government will not whoop up on her. And you all know that Wycliffe, for many, many years, has lived, Wycliffe Bible translators, with this tension. And, you know, the degree to which Wycliffe people are literacy workers and the degree to which they're missionaries. Now, come back and think of the unity of our nation and how tenuous it is and how we fight to maintain it. It's hard work. Michael and I have a disagreement over how many, uh, over how we should handle the question of language in our country. One of us thinks that English should be the official language of our country, and one of us disagrees. And I'll let you guess which one it is. Um, now, come into a church. Well, no. Let's 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 go into marriages. How many of our marriages are things of beauty? I'm not talking about your wife. I'm talking about your marriage. How many of us have marriages that are just beautiful? Day by day, bliss to bliss. No tensions, no arguments, no selfishness. The husband loves the wife. The wife... Loves the husband. There, 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 there. I saved you all from the word submit. (laughs) I wanted just once to snooker you. So you think about marriage and then you go into the home. How many of us as parents have have been grieved over the fighting of our children with each other? It's constant. Even when John Crum comes over to my home, he and Taylor fight with each other. I remember sitting up writing a sermon a few weeks ago and listening to them play a game. And it got so bad that I came out and I think I told one or the other of them that if they didn't stop fighting and bickering that they couldn't play the game anymore. One of them would have to go home. Now, I have no hesitation in saying that undoubtedly the fault was overwhelmingly on the side of Taylor because John is older and godly and dignified. So you go from our country to our states, you go to our marriages, you go into the situations in our homes between children, even children when they grow up. In fact, sometimes more children when they grow up. All of those tensions that were present when we were kids in the home come out, for instance, when our parents die. You have these horrific battles over inheritances and over family heirlooms in the home. And it's the way we process our uh, anger with each other and the residual resentments and jealousies that are left over from youth. If you uh, look at a city and you think of how we drive, and then you think, what is the purpose of traffic cops? The purpose of police officers is to keep a lid on the aggression and stupidity of drivers in our city so that they don't break out into open conflict. And you saw the articles this last week about, you know, they've diagnosed that this uh, road rage is, is apparently uh, has some biological basis. That makes me feel so much better. 
Did you guys see that? It was, it was, yeah. Um, so then we come into the church, and here's, here's where I'm trying to hook you. Why would you think that when our states and our nations and our ethnic groups and our marriages and our sibling relationships and even the way we drive in our cities, conflict is the norm, why would you think that in the church, this is something that, why, why, I just, you know, I, I mean, people do that in churches? You know, are you saying that there are sinners in churches? And the answer is yes. And you say, well, Tim, that's kind of boring. Uh, we all know that we're sinners. That's why we have a prayer of confession at the beginning. But I want to start this section by by nailing you to the wall on this issue so that you can't escape what the teaching of Scripture is on this. When you walk into the church, you're not walking into a society of the righteous. Now you say, that's wrong. All of us are here because we believe and have placed our faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's true. But does that make you holy? And you say, well, yes, the Bible says that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is our holiness. That it's applied to us and that we no longer have to answer for our sin. And I say, so there is no longer sin among us? And you say, well, there shouldn't be. I mean, I know there is. We do fall, but there really shouldn't be. And right there we begin to deal with a tension that is all through the biblical church in America today. And it's a very, very serious theological issue. And some of you will define it in one way, and some of you will define it in another. And you'll have different ways of coping with it. But I want to nail all of us to the wall on the issue of the presence of sin in the body of Christ. Because unless you're willing to affirm that this is the normal state of things, then we can't proceed to study the book of Galatians because the commands you're about to be given and I'm given here in the text make absolutely no sense unless the norm in the body of Christ is failure. Now let me ask you a question. If you were interested in denying that failure is the norm in the church of Jesus Christ, why might you want to deny that? Let's just say hypothetically, you know, just for the sake of argument, that some among us do, don't really want to admit that failure is the norm in the church. What would be our motivation for wanting to deny that failure is the norm? If you could come up with predictions about why we might want to do that, what would they be? Well, think, for instance, of Simon the Pharisee with the sinful woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. What do you think was the motivation of Simon the Pharisee as he sat there and judged Jesus for allowing her to wash his feet with her hair? Remember what Simon said? Simon said he would what? He would not allow her to do that if he knew what? If he knew what kind of woman she was. Now does this sound like a man who's in touch with his own failings? Now, and what do we see again and again on the part of the Pharisees as Jesus 
interacts with the Pharisees. What we see again and again and again is that the Pharisees are incapable of admitting that they sin. The Pharisees have set everything up in such a way that they appear righteous and everybody else appears sinful. So one of the reasons that we would want to deny that the church has serious failure in it, all of us fail, is because of our pride. We want to make sure that the societies we're a part of stand out from other societies and that we can stand, as it were, on a higher hill and look down on everybody else in town. Or simply stand on a higher hill in the church and look down at everybody else in the church. Yeah, there are people in our church who do sin, who, who are failures, but it's not the norm for our church. Generally, we have a pretty good church. Now, if we're not good at living according to God's rule and the way we practice, one easy way of escaping the tension is to say that our doctrine is so superior that our practice can be inferior because when you weigh the two, you know, doctrine is pretty important, you know. And it really doesn't matter if you're an adulterer as long as you admit that adultery is wrong. Well, now, nobody would say it that crassly. You know, but you understand what I'm saying. You, you say, well, doctrine's important. You know, and as long as we have good doctrine, I mean, we can admit we're sinners, but we know what the right thing is. We know it. You know, Mom, yeah, I, I know you told me not to take from the cookie jar, but there were certain extenuating circumstances. Namely, I was getting a headache because I, I haven't had anything since school, and, and dinner's not going to be until probably 6.30 or 7.00. I know what the right thing to do is, but I don't think you want me getting a headache and maybe even vomiting because I'm so hungry. And so we, we set up this thing where we have the knowledge, we're able to repeat the commands, we're able to say what the purpose behind our mother saying it was, but then we slide over here and we can say, now, I, I maintain that your purpose is good, Mom, but, but there's some extenuating circumstances, certain things that are going on here that I don't think you understood as you gave me this command. And so you engage in this very, very careful, very smooth bait-and-switch thing with God where you have a mind filled with knowledge of the truth, but, but there's no living according to the truth. And again, this is a way of protecting our, um, our pride. This is a way of us uh, maintaining our superiority of other, other churches, other Christians. This is a way of ultimately denying that we're really sinning. The whole point of justifying our behavior, saying, but mom, but God, is to deny that we're sinful. The text says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, and then it leads into the statement of positively what we're supposed to do. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Pride, though, can keep us from admitting that in the church there are trespasses and sins and those who have been caught in them. Pride and sin will keep us from admitting that we are the one who has been caught in trespasses and sins. Pride will keep us from admitting that we have been caught in trespasses and sins and therefore 
It will keep us from correcting someone else who is caught in trespasses and sins. Because as any parent has learned, when you spank your son, you give God permission to spank you. And that's why you don't spank your son. I mean, have any of you ever thought about this as parents? It's like so obvious to me. I hope it's obvious to you. If I'm not spanking and disciplining my son, there's a good chance my life is in rebellion against God. (laughs) I mean, isn't this true? Don't you see it in yourself? You know, you don't want to spank your children. Why? Because you don't want God to spank you and you can't very well spank your son if you don't want God to discipline you. Now, God doesn't reach down and spank us, but sometimes some of us would wish that He would because then it would be over with. So here we are. Pride causes us not to admit our own faults and therefore not to want to come alongside others with their faults and correct them. How many times in elders' meetings, in fact, one of the many books I I would like to write is a book that each chapter is one of the biblical excuses for why we don't ever want to discipline anyone. Of course, the main one is judge not lest ye be judged. Every chapter will have a, a verse that's used to excuse us from correcting one another and the people in the church. Well, one of them will be... Um, you know, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Well, we're all sinners, you know. Are we going to go around and correct sinners? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. And so it's a conspiracy of silence. Within the church, we have to begin by admitting that failure and trespasses and sin are not an exception, but they are the rule. You fail, I fail, we fail, all of us. We fail in small, but also in big ways. And in our failures, we follow the pattern set for us by our fathers and mothers in the faith, those in the Old and New Testaments, and also those who have lived in the 2,000 years since the time of the apostles. The Old Testament, the New Testament. In fact, this morning, what were the letters to the seven churches? Corporate church failure. You know, this is good, this is bad. I was at a soccer game Friday night, or, or maybe it was yesterday. Yeah, it was Friday. Up in uh, Center Grove. And as I walked back to the car to, to, to put my coffee mug in the car before the game started, there's tons and tons of people around. And there's a daddy, and he's on his knees in the grass talking to his little, I think about five-year-old daughter. And he's saying, no, you won't. No, you will not do that. No, you know, he's correcting her. And you know what I thought? I thought, praise God. Think of the young woman that someday will grow up because she's had a faithful father who has disciplined her. And so, even on the soccer field, even somebody that isn't even playing, this little girl's just there as a spectator. Who knows for whom? And she's being corrected. God has given her a father who cares to mold her character. I don't even know if they were Christians. I doubt that they were. And yet God has put this kindness in the heart of that father. And discipline is not dead. 
And so we see the discipline of God for whole churches in the book of Revelation in the first couple of chapters. Very specific sins named. Yes, commendation. I'm sure that father, he had his arms around her. He was loving her. But he was disciplining her. We see it in the Old Testament patriarchs. We see it in the New Testament apostles, the disciples. We've seen it in the 2,000 years since. And you would say, well, believers are sanctified. And I would say, yes, believers are sanctified. They're made more holy, more like Jesus day by day. We grow in godliness from the day of our salvation until the day before our, we stand before the Lord in the throne room of heaven. And during that time, we grow because we fail. And our failures are not just mistakes or bad choices. I can't stand how uh, the whole social work establishment has uh, taken sin away and replaced it with bad choices. Bad choices? Well, of course they're bad choices because they're sinful. But why not just say sin? Why not just say failure? Uh, what do they call families that are impaired or something? They call them, yeah, dysfunctional families. They aren't functioning. They don't get up in the morning. They don't cook. They don't clean. The problem isn't that they're dysfunctional families. The problem is that we have lost our faith in the Word of God that tells us about the fall. Many Christians are confused about the difference between justification and sanctification. And that's the root of this error. Now, obviously, I think also the root is pride. But think about the distinction that we're taught in Scripture between justification and sanctification. Many Christians, knowing that when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're born again and their sins are forgiven, knowing that dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they are accounted holy before God the Father, Many Christians believe that this holiness means that they should not sin again or at least not admit that they're sinners again. After all, if God has applied the obedience of Christ to their account once and for all, declaring them holy, how can they strive for holiness? Wouldn't striving for holiness deny that in Christ they are already holy? And this confusion comes from not making a distinction between the Holy Spirit's work of justification, which is a once and for all work that is complete at a point in time where God applies the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. And we're forensically holy. In other words, picture it. You come into a judge's, uh, before the bench in a courtroom before a judge. And you stand before the judge, and the judge declares you not guilty based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the cross. And the moment that that righteousness of Christ is applied to your account, that God says that He will take your faith and apply the righteousness of Christ to your account, at that second, you are federally holy because you're clomped onto Christ. And there is no longer any condemnation. This is the Gospel. And so you are seated in the heavenlies. You are holy. You may come to the Lord's table.
but you are not seated in the heavenlies and you are not holy. Now, I really don't think that this should be that difficult to understand. And yet it seems to throw us for a loop. And it is the tension between, and you'll hear this again and again, what's already true and what's not yet true. All right? And if you try to erase that tension, because none of us like tension, especially when we live such a decadent, comfortable society, tension drives us crazy. And so because we have lazy boys in our living room, we become lazy boys in the Word of God. And we just can't handle tension. Things should be clean. You know, you think of the Dutch home. Everything has a place. Even the front stairs are washed you know, the grass is always cut Saturday night. You ever been in, any of you lived in a Dutch community? You know, it's just pristine. <laughs> and that's the way that the church should be. And you are in Christ and therefore you're holy and therefore don't come into the church and mess things up because the rest of us are holy. Keep your sin at home. In fact, keep it behind a closed door with the curtains drawn. In fact, best keep it in your bedroom. In fact, and you keep getting privater and privater, and I know there's no word, but until nobody knows you're a sinner except God. And that's best. Because then, again, I don't have to deal with you. And isn't that what it's all about? Us not having to deal with one another. Why don't we want to have to deal with each other? Well, then, because then we have to look at who we are. And that's painful. And then we have to give at least some sort of agreement to God that He can deal with our sins because we're going to deal with other people's sins. But you know there's another reason. And the other reason is that um, we like to have friends and usually people that we talk about their sin and often even people that we talk about our own sin to end up not being our friends. Have you ever noticed that? How many of you spend year after year after year after year trying to figure out how you can like tiptoe into the life of your sister or your brother and maybe just mention that they're an axe murderer <laughs> in such a way they won't be offended? <laughs> now, I'm not meaning to say that any of you have axe murderer brothers, you know. But my point is these huge sins in our family and we'll spend decades trying to think how we can broach the subject. And then when things go kaplow, you know, everybody's sitting around prognosticating afterwards, you know, which you're supposed to prognosticate before. And they're saying, well, you know, I always thought. And you know, didn't you? Yep, yep, I always thought, you know. You could see it. You could see it in the way they talk to each other. Yep, yep. Well, I'm not surprised he walked out on her. I mean, you look at the way she's been treating him. You know, these are people that we spent holidays with, that we went on vacations with, and we never, ever, ever talked to them. We said, I love you when we said goodbye and kissed and hugged and prayed. Some of us, you know, never, ever brought up the fact that there seemed to be an absolute death between husband and wife, that the wife was incredibly selfish and the husband was incredibly obtuse and dumb. And you know he wasn't dumb. You know? He weren't dumb. He knew exactly what was going on with his wife and what? 
he had made a truce with her that she could be selfish if he could abdicate. And everybody saw it, and then finally, kerplooey! And everybody goes, whoa, did you see that? They went kerplooey! <laughs> you know, no kidding. And then, you, you know, them having gone kerplooey, you try to clean it up, and it's a shame they didn't keep their sin at home behind the curtains in the bedroom. You know, but you got to deal with it. And then you move on. And then there's this next thing right in front of you. And you just all admitted that you should have dealt with this. And now this is right in front of you. And you begin to say, I don't know how to talk to my sister or brother that, that, that he's an axe murderer. You know, do you think he's... No, 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 I don't think he's an axe murderer. Well, he's got bloody axes in, in the basement. Well, I don't think he's an axe murderer. You know, I think actually that he is... Uh, just wrestling with some uh, bloodlust issues. I, I just think it's 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 you know theoretical blood. You know, it, I don't I don't know. You really think he's an axe murderer? Well, you know. And so again, we talk to each other, and after a while, that gets tiresome. You begin to fight. Well, you talk to him. No, I'm not going to talk. You talk to him. No, I'm not going to talk to him. You know, he might murder me with an axe. You know, and then ten years later, guess what? The FBI's there digging up the backyard and all the neighbors are saying, you know, there was just something about him. You know? Or worse, oh, he was a nice man! He gave candy to my children! And we have all these conspiracies that we don't see what's plain as the nose on the end of your face. And we do it at home, we do it in church. And so in church we invent this doctrinal thing that allows us to escape the tension. We're holy, we're not holy. We're sanctified, we're not sanctified. We're seated in the heavenlies, we're not yet seated in the heavenlies. And, and we, we handle it, right? We handle it by, again, shoving sin into the closet behind the bedroom door with the curtains drawn. And it destroys the church of Jesus Christ. And our country is filled with churches that live by this conspiracy. And it is so insidious and wicked. Because why? Well, if you have a loved one who's desperately sinful and no one's rebuked them or corrected them, you know that there's going to come the time that the piper has to be paid. When is the piper paid when it comes to the sin of the church? Hmm? In other words, when do we have to pay up? We pay up all the time, don't we? You know one thing I love about this church I was thinking before I got up to preach? Because I love the fact that people don't come here to hide from other churches. You would have to be a Gideon to come to this church to hide. <laughs> you know, remember that old Carol King song? No place to run, no place to hide. You got no place to run to, baby, here, right? No. The thing I love about us as a, as a flock is that people end up running from us to hide. Right? I mean, if you were to be asked, name the best reason not to become a member of Church of the Good Shepherd, what would be the reason? 
Well, we could have an argument about this, but I'd say the best reason is that you have to sign a document that says, I agree to submit to the discipline of this church. And I agree that that discipline might continue even if I write in to cancel my membership. (laughs) Because why? Well, because lots of times we say, you're not my mother any longer! And we take our little knapsack and we go out the door and we put out our thumb and we're going to run away from home and that's not my mother anymore. And our mother would have to be an idiot to let us go. Just because we say you're not my mother anymore, and that's the true of the church also. You know what happens sometimes when people are disciplined in the church? They say, you're not my church anymore, precisely at the time when we are most their church. <laughs> you know? It's like, hey, listen. What about those axes in the basement? Covered with blood. You're not my church anymore! I mean, that's easy to understand why they'd say that, isn't it? Justification is an act of God where God applies to our account the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And a man or a woman who stands before the bar of God, the judgment seat of God, and has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is federally holy. In other words, clomped onto Christ with the holiness of Christ. And there is no longer any condemnation. Sanctification, though, is the work of God whereby day by day, minute by minute, second by second, God makes us holy. He declares us holy, and then He makes us holy. It doesn't make any sense unless you think biblically. And Scripture has this all through. You look at the patriarchs, and you see Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted righteousness and then Abraham lied about who his wife was. And then, and then, in case, in case you didn't get the point, he did it a second time. And what about Isaac? Wasn't he a pretty man? What about Jacob? Wasn't he pretty? And even Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. And what about King David? Now, there was a snazzy dude. A man after God's own heart and an adulterer and a murderer. What about Solomon? He was wise, wasn't he? Multiplying wives and concubines at the end of his life. What about Jonah? He was good, prophet of God. And what about Peter? Now, there is a good one. You can say, well, that's all Old Testament. Okay, we're in the New Testament now. we got Peter. And Peter what? Well, again and again. Coming down off the mountain, he said, Lord, should we set up some tents here so that we can just relish the moment? He gets out of the boat, starts walking, and his faith breaks. And he starts sinking. Remember that when he was walking on the water? You say, well, that's before Christ's death, but we live in the New Testament age. I say, okay, fine. Uh, What about Peter when Paul resisted him to his face because he was being preferential in his treatment? of the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember that? The Bible tells us in Galatians that Paul rebuked him to his face in the presence of all.
so what's the application? Well, the application is, who do you think you're kidding? Who do you think you're kidding? I mean, really? Look at me. Take me for an example. Have any of you ever followed me driving? Any of you ever been in an elders meeting with me? I'm so temperate and self-controlled. Take David Canfield. Oh, he's a paragon of virtue. We all love David because every sin he has is lovable. That doesn't make the sins any less sense. Take Dave Carell. All right, let's take Rita Cuffey. Some of you know this godly older woman that was with us until a few years ago. One of the most godly people I've ever known. You know one of Rita's sins? Rita held on to things and remembered them. And she had a good memory. She remembered bad things about people. And Rita was incapable of seeing the sins of her son, Ken, or her pastor, Tim Bailey, or her pastor, Dave Ferris. And you say, well, those are lovable sins. But you don't know my husband's sins. They're not lovable. And you better not ask me mine. In other words, the application of this, brothers and sisters, is that when this text begins with the statement, what? Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spirituals, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And we come up with a theological way that we can use to deny that we live in sin and that we are broken and that we are trespassers. That we do not honor God. Do you know that a few years ago we lost a family from our church? And this is not an uncommon thing. And, you know, some families you're aware when they leave why, but some families you're not. Now, this particular family, you know why they left? They left because we had a prayer of confession at the beginning of our service. And they went out from here and became a part of a heretical group called Grace Walk. Have you heard of this? It's here in town. And Grace Walk tells people that they shouldn't ever confess sins because we're seated in the heavenlies and we're righteous and we shouldn't confess sins because that's to deny the completed work of Christ in our behalf. And so, what's with the prayer of confession? You're not having faith in the completed work of Christ. You don't believe in the grace of God. And so this particular family went out, didn't become a part of any other church. Just hung out with a small group of one another in, in like their living rooms, I think, and had a grace walk. Now, why do I say it's heretical? We need to name these things in public. If, if, if the fruit of a ministry is to cause people to destroy their relationship to the body of Christ and to go off alone and to say that prayers of confession are sin, this is heresy because their souls and the souls of their children are at stake. Where did this come from? Again, it came from not making the proper distinction between justification, which is a work that is complete at a point in time by the application of Christ's righteousness to our account, and sanctification, which is not complete until you die. All right? Which is an ongoing work of Christ. 
Let me end by reading to you the Westminster Shorter Catechism verses, I mean, questions 33, 35, and 37. What is justification? Question 33. Justification is an act of God's grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, not infused, but imputed to us, and received by faith alone. Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So you see, justification is complete. Sanctification is ongoing. It says more and more. And then question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made what? Perfect! (laughs) That's the time you've been waiting for. Made perfect in holiness. And that's what we call what? Justification, sanctification, what? Glorification. Oh, that will be glory for me when I see the face of Jesus. Because we'll be done. Alright? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And I have used this statement over and over again and I'm going to use it again this morning. And that is, the Christian desires three things with respect to sin. It's a little ditty that will enable you to be inoculated against the heresy of Grace Walk and other places which say you should never confess sin, never admit you're a sinner, it's a lack of belief, a lack of faith on your part, claim the promises, you're seated in the heavenlies, and therefore you can be proud. (laughs) Now, they don't say that, that's what I'm saying. All right? Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Now, some of you have heard this many times from me. And so repeat it with me. Justification that it may not condemn. (laughs) Steve, I was counting on you. Sanctification that it will not reign. And glorification that it will not be. Thank you, Steve. You you, you saved yourself. You see this? Christians want three things with regard to sin. Justification that it won't condemn. We're born again by the Spirit of God and we're no longer under condemnation. Sanctification that sin will not, R-E-I-G-N, it's what a king does, that it will not reign. Glorification, which comes when you die, that it will not what? Now, repeat that with me. It's not that hard. And if you memorize it, this will inoculate you against this perfectionism and pride. Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Say it with me. Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification, that it will not condemn. Sanctification, that it will not reign and glorification that it will not be. All right? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will keep the pride of our